Luke chapter 10, verses 21 through 42, verses 21 and 22. In that hour, Jesus rejoiced in spirit and said, I thank thee, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that thou hast hid these things from the wise and prudent and hast revealed them unto babes. Even so, Father, for so it seemed good in thy sight. All things are delivered to me of my Father, and no man knoweth who the Son is but the Father, and who the Father is but the Son, and he to whom the Son will reveal him. Burkett notes, Here we find our Savior's glorifying his Father and magnifying himself. 1. He glorifies his Father for the wise and free dispensation of his gospel grace to the meanest and most ignorant persons, while the great and learned men of the world undervalued and despised it. I thank thee, Father, thou hast revealed these things to babes. Learn hence, 1. That till God reveals himself, his nature and will, no man can know either what he is or what he requires. Thou hast revealed. 2. That the wise and knowing men in the world have in all ages despised the mysteries of the gospel, and having therefore been judicially blinded by God, thou hast hid these things from the wise and prudent. When men shut their eyes against the clearest light and say they will not see, God closes their eyes and says they shall not see. 3. That the most ignorant, if humble and desirous of spiritual illumination, are in the readiest disposition to receive and embrace the gospel revelation. Thou hast revealed them unto babes. 4. That this is not more pleasing to Christ than it is the pleasure of his Father. Even so, Father, for for it seemed good in thy sight. Observe 2. Our Savior magnifies himself. 1. His authority and commission. All things are delivered unto me. That is, all power is committed to me as mediator from God the Father. 2. His office to reveal his Father's will to a lost world. No man knoweth the Father but the Son, or the Son but the Father. That is, no man knoweth their essence and nature, their will and pleasure, their counsel and consent, their mutual pact and agreement betwixt themselves for saving a lost world, but only themselves and those to whom they have revealed it. Learn thence that all saving knowledge of God is in, by, and through Christ. He, as the great prophet of his church, reveals unto us the mind and will of God for our salvation. None knoweth but he to whom the Son revealeth. Verses 23 and 24. And he turned him unto his disciples and said privately, Blessed are the eyes which see the things that ye see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings have desired to see those things which ye see and have not seen them, and to hear those things which you hear and have not heard them. Burkett notes, from the very first giving out of the promise of Christ to Adam after the fall, Genesis 3.15, there was in all good men a longing desire and expectation to see that person who should be so great a blessing to mankind. Prophets and kings desired to see the promised Messiah. Now says our Savior to the disciples, Blessed are you, for you have seen with the eyes of your body what others only saw with the eyes of their mind. With your bodily eyes you have seen the promised Messiah coming in the flesh, and also the miracles to confirm you that I am he have been wrought before your eyes. Therefore, blessed are the eyes of your body, which have beheld me corporally, and blessed also are the eyes of your mind, which have beheld me spiritually. A sight of Christ by a believing eye, much more by a glorified eye, is a blessed sight. Blessed are those eyes which see Christ in his dispensations of glory hereafter.
verses 25 through 28. And behold, a certain lawyer stood up and tempted him, saying, Master, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said unto him, What is written in the law? How readest thou? And he answered, saying, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, and with all thy soul, and with all thy strength, and with all thy mind, and thy neighbor as thyself. And he said unto him, Thou hast answered right. Do this, and thou shalt live. Burkett notes, Here we have a lawyer, that is, an interpreter and expounder of the law of Moses, tempting our Savior, that is, making a trial of him, whether he would deliver any doctrine contrary to the law of Moses. He propounds, therefore, a question. What should he do to inherit eternal life? Where, note, he believed in the certainty of a future state. Two, he professes his desire of an eternal happiness in that state. Three, he declares his readiness to do something in order to obtaining of that happiness. Hence learn that all religion, both natural and revealed, teaches men that good works are necessary to salvation, or that something must be done by them who desire to enter into life. What shall I do to inherit eternal life? It is not talking well and professing well, but doing well that entitles us to heaven and eternal salvation. And this the very light of our nature teaches. Observe, too, our Savior's answer. What is written in the law? How readest thou? Intimating to us that the word and law of God is the rule and measure of our duty, our guide to direct us in the way to eternal life. The man replies that the law of God requires that we love God with all our heart, soul, and strength, and our neighbor is ourselves. Where note one, that the fervor of all our affections, and particularly the supremacy of our love, is required by God as his right and due. Love must pass through and possess all the powers and faculties of our soul. The mind must meditate upon God. The will must choose and embrace him. The affections must take complacency and delight in him. The measure of loving God is to love him without measure. Note, too, that the best evidence of our sincere love to God is the unfeigned love of our neighbor. Love to man is both a fruit and testimony of our love to God. For he that loveth not his brother, whom he hath seen, how can he love God, whom he hath not seen? Note 3, that as it is every man's duty to love himself, so he is to love his neighbor as himself. Not as he does love himself, but as he ought to love himself. Not with the same measure and degree of love, but in the same manner and kind of love that we love ourselves. Do we love ourselves freely and readily, sincerely and unfeignedly, tenderly and compassionately, constantly and perseveringly? So should we love our neighbors also. Though we are not required to love our neighbors as much as we love ourselves, yet we are commanded to love them like we love ourselves. Observe lastly our Lord's reply, Thou hast answered right, this do, and thou shalt live. Where note 1, that the fervor of all our affections, and particularly the supremacy of our love, is required by God as his right and due. Love must pass through and possess all the powers and faculties of our soul. The mind must meditate upon God. The will must choose and embrace him. The affections must take complacency and delight in him. The measure of loving God is to love him without measure. Note, too, that the best evidence of our sincere love to God is the unfeigned love of our neighbor. Love to a man is both a fruit and testimony of our love to God. For he that loveth not his brother, whom he hath seen, how can he love God, whom he hath not seen? Note, three that as it is every man's duty to love himself, 
so he is to love his neighbor as himself. Not as he does love himself, but as he ought to love himself. Not with the same measure and degree of love, but in the same manner and kind of love that we love ourselves. Do we love ourselves freely and readily, sincerely and unfeignedly, tenderly and compassionately, constantly and perseveringly? So should we love our neighbors also. Though we are not required to love our neighbors as much as we love ourselves, yet we are commanded to love him like we love ourselves. Observe lastly our Lord's reply. Thou hast answered right. This do, and thou shalt live. Where note that Christ intimates to him that the law, considered in itself, could give life, but then a person must keep it perfectly and exactly, without the least deficiency, which is impossible to man in his fallen state. For the law is not weak to us, but we are weak to that. Romans 8.3 The law becomes weak through the weakness of our flesh. Such as seek salvation by the works of the law must keep the law perfectly and exactly, which being impossible in our fallen estate. Christ has obtained of his Father that for his sake our sincere, though imperfect obedience, shall find acceptance with God and be available to our salvation. Verses 29 through 37. But he, willing to justify himself, said unto Jesus, And who is my neighbor? And Jesus answering said, A certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among thieves, which stripped him of his raiment and wounded him and departed, leaving him half dead. And by chance there came down a certain priest that way, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. And likewise a Levite, when he was at the place, came and looked on him, and passed by on the other side. But a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion on him, and he went to him, and bound up his wounds, pouring in oil and wine, and set him on his own beast, and brought him to an inn, and took care of him. And on the morrow, when he departed, he took out two pence, and gave them to the host, and said unto him, Take care of him, and whatever thou spendeth more, when I come again, I will repay thee. Which now of these three, thinkest thou, was neighbor unto him that fell among the thieves? And he said, He that showed mercy on him. Then said Jesus unto him, Go, and do thou likewise. Burkett notes, The design of our Savior in this parable is to convince the lawyer who put the question to him, Who is my neighbor? Verse 29, that everyone is and ought to be accounted our neighbor to whom God affords us an opportunity of doing good, contrary to the straight notion of the Pharisees that by the word neighbor understood friends and kinfolk, brethren by blood, neighbors by habitation, and persons of the same religion. Our Savior by this parable taught him that even strangers and professed enemies, everyone that needed our help and relief, is to be accounted our neighbor. To convince him hereof, Christ propounds this parable of a Jew that fell among thieves, and was neglected by his own countrymen, but relieved by a Samaritan who, though a professed enemy upon the score of religion, yet was so exceeding kind and charitable that he became physician, surgeon, and host, and a real neighbor to the unknown traveler wounded by thieves in his journey to Jericho. From the whole learn one, that every person in misery is the object of our mercy, our neighbor, and capable of our charity. Two, that no difference in religion, much less in some doubtful opinion, will excuse us from exercising acts of charity and compassion towards such as are really in want and need of our assistance. 
Our holy and merciful religion makes all persons the object of our compassion who are indigent and helpless, though they be strangers and foreigners, heathens or heretics, friends or enemies, yea, be they good or bad, holy or wicked. As we have opportunity, we must do good unto all, and to imitate the example of our merciful God, who is kind to the unthankful and to the evil. 3. That real charity is an active, operative thing. It consists not in good words given to the distressed, nor in compassionate beholding of them, nor in pitiful mourning over them, but in positive acts of kindness towards them. The Samaritan here is an example of a real and thorough charity. He turns his face towards the forlorn man, his feet hasten to him, his hands pour in wine and oil into his wound, after which he sets him upon his own beast, brings him to the inn, stays with him all night, and the next day, because his recovery would be a work of time and expense, he leaves him, but first leaves money with the host and a special charge to take care of him, with a punctual promise that whatever was expended more should be repaid. Behold here an instance and pattern of a complete charity, managed with as much discretion as compassion. Well might our Lord say to this person, and in him to every one of us, Go, and do thou likewise. Verse 38 Now it came to pass, as they went, that they entered into a certain village, and a certain woman named Martha received him into her house. Burkett notes, Observe here, 1 the great work and business of our Savior's life. It was to go about preaching the gospel. 2. The nature of the place which Christ at this time preached in. It was a poor village, Bethany as some think. Christ did not only take care of populous cities and great towns, but private villages and obscure places enjoyed also the blessing of his ministry. Our Savior's example herein is instructive to his ministers, not to affect great auditories and to preach only in populous cities, but to scatter the seed of the word in country villages, where are like precious souls to be taken care of and provided for. As Christ was sent himself, so he sends his ministers to preach the gospel to the poor. Observe 3. The party that entertained him in the village. Martha received him into her house. Martha is named because she was probably the owner of the house. Though Christ had no house of his own, yet he had as many as he pleased at his command. For wherever he had a heart, he was sure to have a house. Martha received him into her house. Verse 39. And she had a sister called Mary, who also sat at Jesus' feet and heard his word. Burkett notes, Observe 1. Both these sisters were holy and devout women. Both had an honor and reverence for Christ, and both forward to entertain him. These were sisters by grace as well as by nature. Yea, they both for a time attended upon Christ's preaching. Mary also sat at Jesus' feet, implying that Martha sat there too, till household occasions called her away. Oh, how happy is that family where all parties are agreed to receive and entertain the Lord Jesus Christ. Observe too, no sooner is Christ entered into Martha's house, but he falls a-preaching. While they provide bodily food for him, he prepares spiritual bread for them. Oh, that in our place and measure we might all imitate Christ in this. Can we come into any house or any company and find nothing to say or do for God? Observe 3. The holy and humble deportment of Mary upon this occasion. She sat at Jesus' feet and heard his words. When Christ was speaking, Mary was hearing, and little things could not take her off. Lord, how carefully should we take the present opportunity 
for our souls to hear and learn of thee, as Mary did. She was not sure of another opportunity, therefore hears humbly, attentively, and affectionately, as if it were her last hearing season. Verse 40. But Martha was cumbered about much serving, and came to him and said, Lord, dost thou not care that my sister hath left me to serve alone? Bid her, therefore, that she help me. Burkett notes, Observe here, one, Martha's behavior. She was cumbered about much serving, that is, much taken up with providing for the entertainment of Christ and his friends. All which considered in itself was no miscarriage, but a token of Martha's endeared respect for her best friend. A person that sincerely loves Christ, as Martha did, thinks he can never show enough of respect unto him. Martha, having such a guest to honor her house, puts forth herself all she can, yea, more than she was able, to give him entertainment. She was cumbered about much serving. Observe, too, Martha's complaint to Christ concerning her sister's not joining with her in the work that lay so hard upon her. Lord, dost thou not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Bid her, therefore, that she help me. As if Martha had said, Is it a fit thing that both thyself and all this company should be unprovided for? Or is it reasonable that the whole burden should lie upon me, while Mary sits still and does not touch the least household business with one of her fingers? Lord, what infirmity and weakness intermixes and mingles with the virtues and graces of the best of thy servants, especially when they give way to their distempered passions? This good woman at this time did not attend upon Christ's preaching herself, but interrupts him with a frivolous complaint about her sister. Bid her that she help me. But why did not Martha speak to her sister herself, and whisper in her ear, and acquaint her with how she wanted her help, but makes her moan to Christ? Answer, tis like she thought her sister was so tied by the ear with those adamantine chains of Christ's heavenly doctrine, that until Christ was silent, she had no power to stir. Doubtless, she believed that Mary would not move, unless Christ spake to her so to do. Observe 3 that all this while Mary speaks not one word for herself. No doubt it troubled her, good woman, to hear her sister complain of her to Christ, and to find herself blamed for her piety, and implicitly condemned for laying hold of such a sweet opportunity of hearing the beloved of her soul, whose lips dropped as the honeycomb. However, she speaks not a word in her own vindication, but leaves her answer to her Savior. Learn, thence, that when we are complained of for well-doing, it is our duty, and it may be our prudence, to seal up our lips in silence and to expect our vindication from above. Mary says nothing, but Christ speaks for her in the next verses. Verses 41 and 42. And Jesus answered and said unto her, Martha, Martha, thou art careful and troubled about many things, but one thing is needful, and Mary hath chosen that good part, which shall not be taken away from her. Burkett notes, as if Christ had said, Martha, Martha, I well know that thou dost all this in love to me, and it is no more than what is thy duty in its proper season, but thou hadst now an opportunity to hear my word, which thou cannot have every day, and it would have pleased me better, to whom it is meat and drink to feed souls, if I had seen thee sitting with thy dear sister at my feet, and yielding in attentive regard to my holy doctrine, than to find thee performing a necessary civility to my person. Thou hast not made a bad choice, but Mary has made a better. She has laid all aside to attend upon my ministry, and the fruit of it will continue with her to all eternity. 
It is that good part which shall never be taken away from her. Note here, 1. The unexpectedness of our Savior's answer to Martha. How contrary it was to her expectation. She thought that her sister should have been sent away with a check, and herself with thanks. But she's quite mistaken. For all her good cheer that she had provided for Christ, he spares not to tell her of her fault. Martha, Martha, thou art troubled about many things. Learn hence that no obligations to any particular persons should so enthrall us, but that our tongue should be at liberty to reprove the faults of our best friends wherever we find them. Martha, though a pious and good woman, though a friendly and kind woman, though a woman greatly beloved by Christ, yet she is reproved by Christ. Note here, too, the reproof given to Martha. Thou art troubled about many things. Where Christ condemns not her hospitality, but her solicitude and superfluity, her distraction and perplexity. Oh, how prone are we to exceed in the things lawful and necessary, and go beyond our bounds in them. When we are satisfied in the matter, we are prone to exceed in the measure. Martha's entertainment of Christ was a noble service, but she was too anxious and solicitous about it. She was cumbered. She was careful. She was troubled. Note 3. Our Savior's Admonition. But one thing is needful. That is, there is one thing which ought first and principally to be regarded by us, and is of the greatest concernment to us, namely the business of religion and the care of our soul's salvation. Learn hence that the care of religion and our soul's salvation is the one thing necessary, and that which every man is concerned in the first place, and above all things, to regard in mind. Note 4. Our Savior's Justification of Mary's Choice. Mary hath chosen that good part. Christ did not tell Martha that she had chosen a bad part, but her sister had chosen the better. Martha's entertainment of Christ was good, but Mary's attendance upon Christ's ministry was better and more pleasing unto Christ. Christ was better pleased to see Mary in the chapel than Martha in the kitchen. Though he doth not condemn the one, yet he extols the other. Mary had chosen the good part. Learn hence that religion and the service of God must be the matter of our election and choice. We must choose the good part, and its being once chosen by us, it shall never be taken away from us. One thing is needful, and Mary has chosen that good part, which shall never be taken away from her.